Thank you so much, Alyssa, for reading the scripture for today. And like Pastor Jen said last week, have we got the right scripture here? Right? It sounds somewhat foreign to our ears. But welcome to Micah, where we are learning about walking humbly with our God. When I think about humility, uh, it's not exactly a virtue that comes easily to any of us. I, for another part of my life, teach in a university setting, and I vividly remember grading a set of papers one year at the end of the semester, I mean, you know, getting ready for graduation. And as I graded this paper, I started to smell something that I've learned to smell now in 26 years of teaching, and it's called plagiarism. That's when a student will write the words that really belong to someone else, and in effect, they're stealing. And the more I looked at the paper and compared sources, and we have our ways to do that, uh, my heart just sank because this student was hoping to graduate the next week. And part of the penalty in any institution, as far as I know, is uh, pretty severe, which meant that they would fail the course and not be able to graduate. So I did what I had to. My hands were tied because they broke the law and the penalty came. And I can recall seeing that student after the summer was over the next fall and our eyes met and there was a moment of, you could imagine, I suppose, humility on both our ends. Not something I like to do. I also was humbled uh, last month when I got this envelope that I didn't recognize the return address for, and it said Pennsylvania Department of State, and I opened it, and I began to read, and it was a citation for speeding. And I thought, a part of me thought, well, okay, for all the times I have, if I'm guilty, this is a small down payment, all right, but still, I don't like to get caught, and I don't like to pay. And I don't like to speed, really, right? I'm just saving God's time, so. <laughs> Too much information, I know. So as I scanned down the citation, I thought, well, maybe they've got the wrong person, you know, <laughs> the inner me trying to wiggle out of this. And then I saw printed in living color a picture of my car and my license plate so there was no doubt that it was me who broke the law and the payment. You know, how could I weasel out of it? I was humbled. So much so that I said to myself, I need to get a little sticky thing and stick it on my dashboard the next time I go to school because I don't want to get another ticket. It had humbled me so much that uh, it really did change the way I drive. Like I said, welcome to Micah. What's Micah doing? Well, Micah, like all the prophets, are essentially talking to the people of Israel, God's people who are living in God's land, 
And God said to these people, this is my land, and if you want to live there, you must follow my laws. I am the king not only of you, and I am the king of the universe, and I want you to kind of show off my glory by living in such a beautiful way that all the peoples in the world will come through this land bridge in the Middle East and see how I bless you when you obey me. On the flip side, if you don't obey me, I, I won't just like wink at you, I won't just forgive you, I will remind you, I will chastise you, I will discipline you because I love you. And so the prophets came in when things started to get worse and worse. They were like uh, early warning reminders, like the birds, the canaries, and the caves, you know. Um, and they were basically saying, people, you have broken God's laws, and you are living in God's land, and he is your God, he has redeemed you. You need to repent, and if you don't repent, God will judge you. And the ultimate judgment that the prophets said would be leaving the very land that God gave them, exile. But he would give them nudges before that so that if they would repent, God would restore them and restore their blessings. And so Micah, writing in about the year 700 B.C. to the people basically of Judah, that southern area where the temple was is saying, please people, please follow your God. He wants to walk with you, but you must walk humbly with him. And last week, Pastor Jen introduced the prophecy in a general sense where we were reminded too that we as God's people must repent of our sins. Today, Micah in chapter two now digs deeper in one sin that plagued the people of Israel, and it's also infected us. It's the sin of greed. And in the first 11 verses, Micah takes the people to task, and he says in verses 1 through 5, you are land-grabbing. You are plotting evil. Even, he said, when you go to sleep at night. Now talk about being obsessed with money and real estate and building your portfolio. Some of these people in Israel were just like that. The last thing they thought about was the first thing they would do in the morning to cut a deal, to buy more land, to do it in a way that was shady enough it wasn't wrong to buy and sell, but if you were taking advantage of someone, if you were putting someone into slavery in an unjust way, well, they were conniving and plotting. And in verse 2 of chapter 2, it says, they were coveting. They were greedy. And there's a play on words in the Hebrew here. You don't see it in our translations, but it goes like this. You are planning how to make the best deal tomorrow morning, and I am planning how to bring disaster on you for doing that. God will not coexist with idols. 
God always works to promote himself and his glory, and so should his people. That's what Micah's telling them. And this shouldn't be, you know, a surprise, because enshrined in the last of the Ten Commandments is the command against greed. There it's called a, a similar word, right? You shall not covet. It's the same idea. And covetousness, we'll explore in just a moment, is so pernicious because of all those Ten Commandments, the last one, you can't see if I am coveting. Or I can't see if you are, right? You can if somebody's murdering or committing adultery or stealing or cursing the name of God or worshiping an idol. But in the last command, God goes right to the heart. And even more than that, Micah drills down in verses 6 through 11 and says that the prophets, there were some of them who were false prophets, they were actually promoting this lifestyle of greed. Now, prophets in Israel uh, were like preachers today. Just because you're a preacher doesn't mean you're from God, right? You can be in the clergy. But depending on your motivation, you may be telling people what they want to hear so you can have a nice cushy job and have a lot of people patting you on the back, or you can preach to people what they need to hear from God, and it may not go down so well. So Israel was plagued with false prophets, and they didn't believe in this judgment that would come from a loving God. They didn't believe in an exile. After all, they'd been in this land since the days of Joshua. Think about it. The days of Joshua. If you run the numbers, that's 1400 BC. The Jewish people first put their sandals into the promised land. This is 700 BC. Can you see what it feels like? We've been in our country only 200 years. They were in their land 700 years. There's no way God's going to let this land slip out of our fingers. <laughs> this is our land. And God sarcastically at the end of this in verse 11 suggests that if a prophet's message would be, let's say, on the blessing of plenty of wine and beer, well, that's the kind of prophet that people would love. You get it? So both people and preachers, prophets, were one in reinforcing this greed and gain and materialistic culture, and God was in heaven weeping and angry. And notice how God in this condemnation goes to the individual's heart in their bed at night, but also he backs up to the structures that enabled this sort of multiple real estate dealing because it wasn't just one person doing it. It was a systemic thing. Do you see how the prophets are not just looking at this person or this person, nor are they looking at the nation at large. 
it's, it's both. And God hates greed. Sin is as small as a virus, but it's as large as the atmosphere. But that's not all Micah has to say. Unlike chapter one, where Micah just kind of ended on judgment, the last two verses here, verses 12 and 13, give a measure of hope. And that's the other thing that all the prophets do. Every one of them in the Old Testament, starting with Isaiah, ending with Malachi, basically have this message. People of Israel are sinning. God will judge you unless you repent. So repent, and if you don't repent, God will send you into exile. But there's always a future hope where God himself will come and redeem the remnant of his people. And verses 12 and 13, just two verses, give us a little note of that. It's maybe a little odd to read it, but it's really a messianic prophecy. In verse 11, it says, the one who breaks open the way is their king who is their Lord. So you have to imagine either that Micah envisions the people of Israel like sheep stuck in a walled pen and they can't get out and eat anything. And somebody, the shepherd, comes in and breaks open the gate and leads the sheep out to freedom and pasture. I think that's what's going on. Or you could say that it's a picture of a walled city, not sheep but people, who are being held in exile, and God will bring them out to freedom. Either way, you get the same picture, right? It's a messianic prophecy because it's not named as yet who this leader is, who this king is. But Israel's hope in the prophets was never to be, well, if you repent, you can do it, and you will be the hero of the story. No, no, no. It was always, you should repent and follow God, and God will lead you. God's anointed one, God's Messiah. And, of course, this is a picture of Jesus, the coming Messiah. Uh, Michael will paint some more pictures of this. In a few weeks, we'll get to chapter 5, where he'll tell us where he will be born in Bethlehem. And the rest of the prophets put together this picture of both a suffering Messiah and one who comes to reign and rule and get rid of injustice and bring his righteous kingdom. So that's Micah 2. Are you squirming yet? <laughs> well, I haven't talked to us much, right? I can't just say, well, and those poor people of Israel, they did get sent into exile, and now God has come to redeem the church and praise God for Jesus. Now let's pray. Right? <laughs> this is the timeless message of God. He always hates greed in his people. So, like Micah, I'm going to drill down and ask, first of all, what what would you think if you had read this article that I read, uh, I think, two weeks ago, entitled, 
world's 10 richest men see their wealth double during the COVID pandemic. Did some of you see that? Uh, just the title may get your attention. Let me read some of the names of these 10. Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg. What I won't name is how much wealth they actually have. I don't need to because it's just too hard to imagine. Now, freeze, freeze your thought for a moment. What are you thinking right now? Some of you might be thinking, well, you know what? Wow, only in America. That's entrepreneurship, a success story. Go and be like them. Well, oh, you're right, I suppose. I mean, these men all started not so rich, taking a lot of risks, using tactics and business strategies that took them to where they are today. But could it be, as you're thinking, let me push in a bit. Are you thinking, well, oh man, what would it be like to have so many billion dollars? What would my life be like? Is there any hint of a little jealousy there? Is there any maybe finger-pointing like, oh, yeah, you rich people who are oppressing the poor people? If you point your finger that way, are you also saying, well, I want some of what you have? Can I suggest that if any of that is going on in your heart, you're greedy. That's what greed is. And you really don't know if these 10 men are greedy. They might be, but you don't really know. Do you see how greed is a tough one to diagnose? Because only you and God really know if it's illegitimate greed, could I call it, or legitimate need. For instance, if you buy a new vehicle to get around, did you do it because of a legitimate need or to be like someone who has the one that you got? Or because you want to be thought of by your friends or any host of other reasons? Do you see what I mean? Just looking at the car doesn't mean that you are greedy. Only you can really look at your heart. Maybe another way to get at this, if you're not squirming yet, is to say, how much is enough for you? Think about it in terms of, just think about it in terms of dollars. How much is enough? And if your heart says something like, well, just a little more, be careful. I'm not saying it, you are, but you're, you're pushing toward the greed side instead of the need side. Because if that little bit more becomes the next little bit more becomes the next, you see where I'm going with that? That smells like greed. 
That's why I think God put this at the end of the Ten Commandments because you kind of could check off, well, yeah, I'm not murdering, I haven't committed adultery, and I don't steal, but don't covet. Ouch. And that's why in Colossians 3, 5, when Paul writes to Christians, he says this, greed is idolatry. Ouch. What is idolatry? It's worshiping another God beside the true God. So when we find or try to find our satisfaction and our joy and our pleasure, our ultimate satisfaction in money, things, people, anyone or anything else beside God, we're coveting. We're displacing the place that the true and loving God should have in our lives. And God won't stand for that. He brooks no rivals. He is a jealous God. He wants to have all of us. And like the Old Testament people of Israel, God hates greed in us, and he wants us to repent. He disciplines us so that we can drop those things and put our arms around the one who created us and redeemed us and will ever be our God. And he is directing your life. I know you, you may not think it this way. He is moving things in your life to that end. Now, please be careful. Let's not be like Job's friends when we see in the book of Job, right? Tragedy comes and they say, aha, you have sinned because bad things are happening in your life. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about Hebrews chapter 12 that says God disciplines us like our parents do, out of love, not hatred, to win us back, not to push us away to get rid of the sin in our lives, not to beat us up. Why? Because he has something better for us. And in the Old Testament book of Leviticus, we get a window into the heart of God when it comes to greed and money and things. You ever hear of the year of Jubilee? You remember what that was? Leviticus chapter 25 describes it. Let, let, let me read verse 30, 23. The land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. Now that's embedded right in Leviticus 25. Do you hear that? The land is mine. Don't sell it permanently. So what is the year of Jubilee? Well, Believe it or not, God said, after seven cycles of the sabbatical year, that is, on the 50th year, the land, not property or possessions, but the land rights, went back to the original owners, families, who got it way back when. It's kind of like... 
Sometimes I play Monopoly with my grandson. And you know how you can really let greed kick in in Monopoly, right? <laughs> and entrepreneurship, too. Uh, but the, kind of the fun thing about Monopoly is, like we were over the other night, and oops, sorry, it's bedtime. Shh, quit the game. Everything gets piled in the box. And then we start over again. Now, I guess you could keep the game going, and I've done that before, right? Keep it there, don't move any pieces, and we'll see who really wins this thing. But God is saying, the land belongs to me. And every 50 years, note, in his law, those who were at the bottom of the economic system had an opportunity to be equal with those at the top. How about that? God wanted to prevent greed from taking over the economic system. The generous God wanted his people to be generous too. Now, I'm not saying that we need to take that law and put it into our laws or your business, but to me, it strikes me that God wanted his people to shine with generosity, but he knew that he had to put a law in there to level the playing field occasionally. Isn't that interesting? I read a story a while back about how to catch a monkey. And I quote from Jeff Daffern, who said it so well on his website, if you want to catch a monkey, you have to trap it. And I'll stop and say, in some cultures, mo monkeys ruin fields and uh, places where people are trying to live even, so they like to depopulate the area of, of, monkey, of the monkeys. So here's how some farmers do it. They will take a gourd and cut a small hole into it that's just big enough for the monkey to fit their hand through. And inside the gourd, they'll put nuts that the monkey craves and then they wait. And sooner or later, a monkey will come by, smell the nuts, and want them. And they'll put their hand through the hole, grab a fistful of nuts, and then they'll try to pull their hand back out, but they can't. The hole is small enough to put their empty hand through, but not big enough for a hand clutching a fistful of nuts. Make sense? So they're stuck. Now, at this point, the monkey should realize, hey, I'm stuck. I should drop the nuts, right? But they don't do that. They want the nuts so bad, they don't want to surrender them, so they pull and pull and pull. They refuse to drop the nuts, and then the hunter comes up behind them and snatches the monkey. And we would say, if they just surrendered what they were holding on to, they could be free. But because they refuse to surrender, they lose their ultimate freedom. God wants us to release our greed for something much, much better. Well, what's, what's better? Well, if I could read to you from Philippians chapter 4, Paul describes something called contentment. He said, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. 
I know what it is like to be in need, and I know what it is like to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Can you see how God is not just telling us, don't be greedy. (laughs) He's also saying, drop it, drop it. I am enough. You don't need to hold so tightly to what you think you need and want. Hold that way to me. And Paul says, I've had the fistful of nuts, and I've dropped them too. And basically, it doesn't matter because I've learned the secret. Interesting. It's a Greek word that he only uses and is only used once in the New Testament here. And it's like, hmm, well, what's the mystery, Paul? And he says, it's something about understanding God's sovereignty in all things. He gives us what we need, not necessarily everything we want. He takes away what he knows we don't need. Maybe sometimes the things that we want, he takes. And being able to be um, flexible and loose with things brings a settled peace so that when you're in Christ, through Christ, you can do anything. You can have more than you need and you can have less than you need because what you really need is Christ and you have him. I heard a pastor say one time, if money can fix it, it's not that big of a problem. (laughs) Well, that could be in the book of Proverbs because I've quoted that to some people and myself many times. If money can fix it, a broken heart, a fractured relationship, a disease, if money can fix it, it's not that big a deal. What can't money fix? And only God can. That's where our love should be. That's where a settled heart of contentment says, Thank you, God. You are enough. And if you think about it, if you move from greed to contentment, the next thing you move to is generosity. Because when you realize that things I could have it, I could not have it. The the land was not permanently theirs. Nothing is permanently mine. I'm only using it for a time, so I can let other people borrow it or have it because God gave it to me. That's the attitude, Chelton, that we must have because, you know, our world is getting so kind of uh, focused on self Not just your own identity, but your own stuff. Get it, be safe. 
And Christians should be able to say, I've got it. Do you need it? Here it is. Jesus is the one who is the breaker, the one who breaks us out of our sin of greed. John Wesley wrote, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. And so that's why Paul said, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might be rich. Let's pray. Well, Lord, <clears throat> thank you for your generosity in sending Jesus to forgive us, to break the power of the sin of greed. And Lord, we are still so tempted by it. May we smell contentment. May we long for it. May we release the things that hold us and we think we are holding. And remember that your hold on us is so tight that you won't let other things into that place. Thank you for what you will do because you love us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.